Well, so nice to be with you again. I feel like this is old home. I come here uh, often enough, I guess once a year or every uh, couple of times a year. Uh, I'm here uh, representing uh, Chosen People Ministries, uh, and I'm also here because I'm a friend of Keith's. And uh, we go back a long, long way. As you may remember, he was the associate pastor or uh, leader of worship uh, at Mountainside Chapel when we were together a number of years ago. Had lunch with uh, Keith just this past week, and he said, come and uh, I want you to talk about chosen people a little bit, but I also want you to talk about discipleship from a perspective of uh, how we uh, understand the, who the disciples were and uh, what levels of discipleship there are and, and maybe what methods Jesus used in order to teach and encourage us to teach in the same way. So that's why we're here today. But first of all, for Chosen People Ministries, uh, you may or may not know, but we have a wonderful um, event coming up, actually two of them, one this coming Thursday night. And it's in Manhattan for those of you who want to brave that uh, trip and sit in a, 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 an auditorium and listen to two marvelous scholars, John Munson and Drew Johnson. They're the two scholars who are going to discuss the question of the reliability and the applicability of the Old Testament to the Christians today. That's going to be a very exciting time of discussion. They'll both present their own views, and then we will um, uh, have have some question and answers. Uh, That's Thursday night at the Ethical Cultural Center, which is a Jewish organization uh, up on the 64th Street. Uh, and um, the uh, uh, Central Park West. Then one week following that, on August the 8th, this is going to be a big one. Have any of you heard of the name Shmuley Boteach? A couple of you, he's America's rabbi. At least that's what he says about himself. And uh, so he's a very, very prominent uh, spokesman for the uh, Jewish community. Well, he has debated Dr. Michael Brown on three or four other occasions, and I've moderated those debates, and they've been circulated um, around the world. And so it's very interesting to see the interaction between these two men who say they are friends, but uh, have quite spirited debate. I asked them in my email to them, this time let's make sure we have peaceful coexistence as well as spiritual uh, spirited debate. So... That's uh, on August the 8th, and I'll be moderating that again. We're expecting about 1,000 people to attend that. And I understand uh, Keith may have to address 1,000 people at a church uh, coming up, so we want to pray for him about that as well. Uh, Could we begin now in prayer? Father, we're uh, thankful that you've called us to yourself. You've given us new life in Messiah Yeshua, uh, Christ Jesus. And we're thankful that uh, all that we know about him from your word uh, we can apply, we can understand, we can uh, sense how it uh, directs our lives as your disciples today. I pray, Father, for the team that is in uh, Brazil. I, I ask you, Father, that it would be uh, one of the most uh, defining moments in their lives personally. I pray that corporately they would represent you very, very well, and that many people would be exposed to the simple truth of the gospel of grace And may they respond uh, in faith. Pray for Keith as he may have the opportunity of speaking to a large number. Uh, Calm him, give him words uh, that he needs to say on that occasion. And I thank you that all around the world there are little groups like this meeting in order to worship the Lord Jesus Christ 
meeting in order to display their commitment to discipleship, learning of Jesus Christ, and going out from those doors of those churches as witnesses uh, for Jesus Christ. I pray, uh, dear Father, that that would be uh, true of us today. Uh, Help us to see it in that way. May each one here uh, go out uh, with a little bit more preparation, a little bit more commitment, a little bit more desire to live the life that would please you the most. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, there is a a folder that you can pick up about Linda and me and about the ministry uh, on your way out uh, if you have any interest in finding out more of what we do. Luke chapter 6, please. If you're looking at a Bible... As I mentioned, we want to talk about uh, the who of discipleship in the New Testament, the what of discipleship, that is, what levels or stages of discipleship all of us hopefully will go through, and then the how of discipleship, that is, how do we communicate truth? How did Jesus do it, and and how should we do it as well? Uh, But in this passage, in Luke chapter 6, we have the calling of the 12 disciples. So let's just read a few verses here and... uh, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside. This is verse 12, 6, 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. I always like that mountainside. We're at Mountainside Chapel. Uh, went out to a mountainside to pray, or now we're liquid mountainside, I should say, and spent the night praying to God. It's all night he's praying to God. Now, why would the Son of God, the omniscient one, have to pray all night? That's something that raises a question, doesn't it? Well, then when morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them. Evidently, there were a lot of others who were following him around, but he was zeroing in on 12 men. So he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. A disciple is one word, apostle is another, as you well know. This is the only gospel account, Luke, that calls them apostles at this stage, but of course they become apostles a little bit later. But these are the 12. These are the 12 with a capital T. These are the 12, whom he also designated apostles. And then he names them Simon, whom he named Peter. That is later, he changed his name from Shimon to Petros. His brother, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon, who is also called the Zealot. Judas, son of James. And what do you know? Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Interesting. He didn't get it perfect, did he? Well, maybe he did, since he knew what was going to happen. But you have Judas in that group of 12. That's always interested me, uh, just for curiosity's sake at least. Well, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Something very, very special, huh? Very unique time in human history where we have a man who was so attractive to people because of his teaching and because of his miraculous ability to heal. And then he gives the teaching, and this is the the abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount, 
which is given in five cha- or, I'm sorry, three chapters in uh, Matthew. So it's much more uh, detailed in Matthew, but I think this is a, a shorter account of it, and Luke chose to use just these words. Then you can read through, and uh, blessed are those who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who, sh- who weep now, because you're going to laugh. Blessed are you when, he, when men hate you, and when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how the, their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. So that means all of you here. Woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when all men speak well of you for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So, we begin a lengthy teaching uh, period in the life of our Lord where he shows that, uh, that discipleship is one thing and learning more about him is another. So people were attracted. They were very curious. They came to him and they, they, they thought he's teaching unlike the way that uh, the rabbis taught, teaching with his own authority, not quoting rabbis. And he was doing miracles that nobody else had done. And some of those miracles were messianic miracles. And so they were thinking, is this the one? Is he the Messiah? So they kept following him around. But they're particularly interested in his teaching. Now, uh, many have compared this to Moses, right? Because Moses went up into the mountainside of Mount Sinai. He heard from God. God gave him revelation. He went down the mountain and he revealed that word of God to the people and a plateau there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so likewise, Jesus spends time praying all night. He comes back with revelation from God, and, and he teaches the disciples who were attracted to him. But we mustn't leave out the idea that it's the teaching that is so important. And sometimes we tend to neglect that in messages on discipleship these days. I think also Deuteronomy 18.18 might figure into the background of this a little bit because there's going to be another prophet, remember? Moses said there's a prophet that's coming later and you better listen to him. I just wonder if if that's part of the sub-motif there that we have. Now, um, this raises some questions, doesn't it? We've got 12 apostles. We had 12 tribes. We have the idea of... uh, Receiving revelation and Jesus giving revelation and the people being taught, it sounds like it's, a, it's on purpose, doesn't it? I think it is. Uh, but we must be careful not to say that because there are parallels here and there seems to be continuity between what went on in the Older Covenant and what's going on in the beginning of the Newer Covenant, that Israel somehow is replaced by the church. We don't want to say that. And for us in Jewish ministry, we feel very strongly about the future of the nation of Israel, and I think you do here as well because of your doctrinal position. There is something going on in which God is going to complete the work that he's begun and fulfill the promises that he's made uh, to the nation of of Israel. So we don't want to make that mistake. But there were disciples under Moses. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that Moses had his disciples, right? And so there are disciples under Jesus, but what is a disciple? This raises some questions. For example, what, what really is a disciple? Many people say, well, don't, don't say disciple, say follower of Jesus. 
Now that's true. There's a word, akalutheo, which means to follow, and it's used of those who were following Jesus around. And there were those who followed him around just because they liked what he was doing. Not too much uh, different from the people who are attracted to Jesus for some reason or another, but not the right reason. But the word uh, matheteo, or matheteis, is the word for uh, a disciple. And that's a word from which we get mathematics, as a matter of fact. So it's like line upon line, detail upon detail, you know, and, and it's, it's a serious study as one follows a person or a movement or a faith. So now we have learners. The same word was used in Greek um, circles about training someone as a mentor would train a protege uh, or someone we, would be trained in, in the field of uh, medicine. Uh, those were the disciples of the teachers who were the doctors of the day. Uh, librarians, believe it or not, would use the same word in the classic Greek. My disciples were the ones who were learning how to do, not the Dewey Decimal System back then, but how to catalog and arrange things and do it properly. So there's a lot wrapped up in the word matetuo or disciple. One of the, the phrases I like the most is that it, it probably is a reference to directing the minds of people. It's not telling them what to believe, but it's helping them figure out what to believe and how to put it into practice. And so we like to think that our, our school, the Feinberg Center for Messianic Jewish Studies that, that I'm directing and, and teaching in, what we're trying to do is to help students understand the Word of God and biblical theology uh, to the point that it changes their minds. They come in with certain ideas. We want their minds to be changed. So what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. Are you a learner? Maybe that's the question that you have to ask. Whatever level you are, are you learning? Are you applying your mind, not just your heart, but your mind to understanding theology, what it's all about? I would hope you are, and I, I think under the kind of teaching you're getting here, that would be the case. I hope so. What are the characteristics of a disciple? Well, very often people uh, consider that to be a reference to how one lives his life, his lifestyle. So if he's walking along the narrow way and he's not um, smoking or drinking or chewing and going out with those who do, those kinds of things, it's the lifestyle, right? Well, that, that's part of it. But there's so much more to being a disciple. Were the disciples of Jesus different than us today? I think we have to say yes, don't you? I mean, it seems to me that if Jesus were standing right here in front of me and he said, uh, I know you're busy preaching a sermon or whatever you're doing here, but would you uh, follow me? Oh, and I know your, your family, they're in the front row. They're not, but if they were. Uh, leave your family behind and come, come with me. And oh, by the way, uh, if, if your father dies, somebody else can bury him. You just follow me. Well, I'd like to say that if that were Jesus standing here, I'd be an absolute idiot if I didn't walk right out after him because he was speaking directly to me face to face just as Jesus was speaking to Jewish men and women asking them to do things that were extraordinary. So I'm just raising the question. Can we have a more sophisticated understanding of the words of Jesus to his disciples? versus the teaching of the entire New Testament about us in our discipleship? 
In other words, is it proper to make some kind of a break, at least in understanding, of Jesus' earthly ministry before his death and resurrection and the establishment of the church? I say yes, as long as you don't deny the principles that are there. Uh, The principles are certainly that I should follow Jesus. You should follow Jesus, right? But what does that mean? You need to think a little bit more about that. Was personal response to Jesus more important than community response? Was it more important that those disciples, in their heart of hearts, knew and believed Jesus? I think that's the case. You might make the application that there are many people who are part of a church community, but the membership in a church community, the attendance at a church meeting, is not the same as a personal devotion to that one person with a capital P, uh, Jesus, the Messiah. And what's the difference between the the call to discipleship then and now? Well, I I think I'll show you, uh, or at least I'll give you my my opinion in just a few moments of of how that works out. But we know that there are some ways in which we can uh, see the discontinuity between those and uh, us. Now, I want to continue by, um, and this, this is not a sermon. I'm just kind of talking to you, if you don't mind. But if there is an outline, uh, the first part of the outline, that is, who are the disciples, would be, well, there are those who are with Jesus, right? And that includes the 12. It includes the 70 or 72. Luke chapter 10, we'll see that. It includes women, very important uh, sub-motif throughout the, the New Testament. And then there were other disciples as well. Those are the ones who were with Jesus, literally walking around uh, the uh, Holy Land uh, and had personal contact with him. Wouldn't you have loved to be there? Go like this. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, <laughs> I tell my students, it, it's probably better for you to get in a quiet place than to listen to a professor teach. It's better for you to get in a quiet place than to be in a group meeting like this. It's better for you to be in a quiet place and just meditate for a while. Just think about the depths of the truth in the Word of God. And the idea, wouldn't it have been nice to be with him and to walk with him? I can't do that today. I mean, I can, kind of, but not really. You can, kind of, but not really, because we're not with him physically. So So there are those who are with Jesus. But then there are many, 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 many others, and maybe that applies to us today, who were like Jesus. What do I mean by like Jesus? Well, I mean there was a, a spiritual life that was similar to what Jesus had or taught. There was an ethical life based on principles that he taught in the New Testament. And there was that community life in which they were part of the bigger group. So let's talk about these very briefly. And again, um, these are just um, ideas that have come to me, and I hope they help you as we, as we go through them. But there was a real uniqueness to the 12. Uh, there are those around who are claiming to be apostles today. There's something called the New Apostolic Reformation. Maybe you've heard of that. Anybody hear, heard of that? Have you? Okay, well... We could talk afterwards. (laughs) That is a blight on uh, theology today. But anyway, it's the idea that, well, they're now apostles again and uh, have just the same authority as these first 12. 
Well, let's, let's think about it for a moment. The 12, their selection was a serious matter of specific prayer and consideration by none other than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Their function was to be the constant compassions of Jesus, uh, companions of Jesus in travel and in ministry. So they were the ones who followed him around. They were close to him. Their example was for all believers in every, every generation, with a few qualifications, perhaps. Their training was to be sufficient for them to be the only apostles of the church. So, uh, I beg to differ with those who, who say that there are apostles, whether they are in Salt Lake City or whether they are in Israel today. The Twelve, a unique, unique group of, of men. And then in chapter 10, let's turn over there for just a moment. Chapter 10 of Luke, you've got another group of disciples. After this, the Lord appointed 72, some manuscripts say 70, but 72 or 70, others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town he and place where he was about to go. He told them that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his vineyard field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among the wolves and don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. And don't greet anyone on the road. So don't have a bank account back in the United States as you go to Afghanistan as a missionary. There are a lot of things that don't apply to today in this passage. But I think this was another unique group of people. And you can see that, well, you go and you preach, and if they welcome you, stay in that house. But if they don't, if they are rejecting your gospel, they're rejecting me, and they're rejecting the Father, he says in the rest of the context. So shake the dust off of your sandals and head out. Go someplace else. I'm not sure that's the way we are supposed to do missions these days, even though the principle may be there. Uh, Verse 16 says, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, I'm not sure I can go into a teaching situation or any kind of evangelistic situation with the same kind of chutzpah. Uh, Maybe there's a principle there. Yeah, I'm representing the king. But do I have the same authority as these 70? Perhaps not. Well, they returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And so you have a, a great deal of, of power there. The 70, the numbers 70 or 72 in Jewish literature often refer to the Gentile nations. Uh, that is something that seems to indicate that this is a, a universal offer. He's going beyond the norm and maybe to the, the nations of the world, which he says, of course, in the Great Commission, going to all the world. But here it seems like he's hinting at that, you know? And you're, but he's sending them into the, the towns of Judea and Samaria, and uh, they're kind of like his front men. The beautiful thing about this is that the 70 had the same authority as the 12. The 70 preached the same message as the 12. The 70 demanded a decision by those who heard them. And they rejoiced over their power. Even the demons obey. And then, most importantly, I think, the 70 learned that their salvation was more important than their ministry. And that's what Jesus says to them. He says, I praise you, Father, because you have hidden the treasures from the wise and learned and revealed them to these little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. 
And he says, rejoice to the 70. Yeah, it's a pretty great thing what you've done on your missionary trip. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So I think they learned that their salvation was more important than their ministry. Have you learned that? Uh, it's a hard one, but your relationship to the Lord and your devotion to him is more important than what you do for him. Kind of goes back to the whole salvation thing, right? It's not what we do for him. It's what he's done for us. It's our relationship to him that is more important than even what we do as disciples. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the women. And that's in Luke chapter 8. If you want to go back a couple of uh, chapters to that. 1 through 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Remember, they're always with him. And always, uh, also, some of the women who had been cured of evil spirits and disease, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Clusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These are women who were helping to support them out of their own means. Just a moment uh, of thought here. A special word is used. It's sun akalutheo, which is a word that means they followed closely with him. They were with him in a different way, it seems. And I, I think this has something to say about the prominence that was given to women by our Lord Jesus in his ministry. And remember, he healed them of all kinds of diseases, and then they, they were very close in supporting him. So the technical term that is used indicates a, a level of discipleship or faith. The specific role is mentioned to indicate the support that they provided out of their wealth. And there were a couple here who were fairly wealthy, evidently. The wife of Chuzza, Joanna, the manager of Herod's household. That's pretty significant. A special role is mentioned uh, in this support. And a loyal devotion is seen when they are the ones who come to the empty tomb of our Lord. Do you remember? They're the same ones that are mentioned later on. So I think it kind of went... All that way. So we have the 12, we have the 70, all of these were with him. And we have the women who were with him, walking along with him. And, and there were others too, um, to follow uh, or to learn. We've got the discipleship. But all believers were not part of his closest followers. There are some, I've re- read some accounts of discipleship that say, well, the true disciples... The only real disciples in the life of Jesus were the ones who were the wandering charismatics, as they said. They're the ones who were wandering along with Jesus and they were out there with him all the time. Those are the true disciples. But I would suggest to you that there were others who were, um, let's call them settled sympathizers. Let's call them those who were maybe supporting the work. Let's call them those who were committed to Jesus Christ but hadn't been commissioned in the same way that the 12 or the 70 or these women were. And what about those that Jesus said after healing them, be quiet now, like the Gadarene demoniac, remember? A strange thing to say, but don't talk about what happened to you. And he did that over and over again. It's called the Messianic secret. It seems like he wanted it to be uh, hush-hush 
until a certain timing. That's another discussion. But what about Joseph of Arimathea? When did he come to faith? Is it possible that he came to faith at the same time as uh, Nicodemus? And yet for the entire ministry of our Lord, didn't show his discipleship until the very end when his, his tomb was given over? I don't know. I think there were um, those who are settled sympathizers, convinced and committed sympathizers, who are not compromisers, but they're solid believers in Yeshua. And they're ready and willing to do whatever he wants them to do. And they're waiting for him to say. Could I suggest that that might represent many of you sitting here? And yet you've been, you've been given a, a, a bill of goods saying that unless you are doing certain things, you're not really a good disciple of Jesus. Unless you have cleaned up your act completely and submitted to the Lordship of Christ in every area of your life, you're, you're probably not really a disciple. You're not a true disciple. Uh, I want to encourage you. I don't see that in Scripture. I do not see that in Scripture. And so I want to appeal to those who are of the other kind. And were there any of the other kind? Were, were there those back in the time of Jesus who were ready for self-denial and they were abiding in the vine? They're willing to sub submit their lives, physical and spiritual lives, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, usually in discipleship, and I probably, I don't know whether Keith wanted me to do this or not, but usually in a discipleship message, you're always pumping people up. Do more, do more, do more, do more. I'd like to suggest that you just relax a little bit and enjoy what you have in Christ. And the more you enjoy what you have in Him, the more likely it is he'll give you something special to do. And so, the, so there were those who were with him, but there are those who were like him. Let's talk about that in the spiritual life. Certainly after Pentecost and during the age of the church, this spiritual life is based upon a spiritual unity. He's on the inside of you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Right? I in you and you in me, he said, even in his earthly ministry, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And being conformed to the very image of Christ, process, sanctification process, not a sudden I believe, but it's rather I'm believing, I'm growing. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Keep me moving in the right direction. That, that to me is spiritual life. And it's not only based on a spiritual unity with him, but it's also evidenced by a spiritual dimension that can only come from that relationship, such as a spirit-produced growth. It's not me telling you what you can or cannot do, but it's a spirit-developed growth that makes you different. Are you different? I don't mean are you different because you don't do certain things and you do do certain things. Do you have a different mentality completely? Is your mind transformed by this spiritual relationship with Yeshua? If it isn't, there may be something lacking because that's the goal. It's a spiritual life that is evidenced by a spirit-produced growth. 
that makes you different. It's a spiritual life that also helps you to continue to count the cost. Yeah, I counted the cost when I came to faith. I realized that I might have lost some friends. I might have to stop doing some things I did before, but I'm, it's so impelling. It's this irresistible grace. And I'm saying to myself, I, I trust Jesus Christ. I've come to faith in him. Now you have a continuing growth, don't you? You should have a continuing growth. And that makes you different in the way you do your decision-making. And what about uh, the nurture that you have in Christ and the prayer life that you have? Is it formulaic? Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in some liturgy, as a matter of fact. I love some of the Anglican liturgy, the formalized prayers. But perfunctory? I'm not sure that's the way it's supposed to be. I think we're supposed to have a lively conversation with the, the Lord of the universe. We have that wonderful privilege to go directly into the throne room to find mercy and grace in time of need. That's pretty special. So that's the prayer and the nurture that we have from him. And what about the, the ethical life? Well, this comes to the Sermon on the Mount, you know, after he chose his disciples and came down to give the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we should look at the Sermon on the Mount. And keep it very, very high as the standard. It's a very high standard. And uh, I would never be one to say you don't try to uh, follow the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that would be almost uh, sacrilege. But let me tell you something about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is like the law of Moses. You have the Mosaic law. Then you have the Mishnaic law, what the rabbis thought of the Old Testament. And then along comes Jesus and he says, this is the messianic law. Moses, you can't keep that law. You have to have sacrifices. You got to do something to get back in good, good graces with God. And so God gave the Levitical sacrifices, blood. The Mishnah comes along, the writings of the rabbis, and they say, oh, you can inherit the kingdom of God. Just do what we do. So follow our laws of the Mishnah, that's the rabbinical writings, and you'll be fine. Then Jesus comes along and says, no, it's back to the Mosaic law. So he's presenting in the Sermon on the Mount standards that are so high, higher than the law even, and he says, these are the ones that you have to follow. And if your righteousness isn't greater than the Pharisees who gave us the Mishnah, then you have no part. But what was the law trying to do? The Mosaic law was trying to get us to realize the need for a substitute. Uh, the Mosaic law drove the Israelites to their knees. They'd cry out, oh God, save us. We can't save ourselves. Jesus said the same thing. He gave us all of those, those rules and regulations that seem like they're legalistic, but they're only to give us a standard and to show us that we can't keep them. Now, I know you're probably thinking, well, I keep the law. I keep the Sermon on the Mount. Just read through it this afternoon and come back to me later. It's impossible. And yet it drives us to our knees as well. So I think that's the ethical life that we have. We live a life of contradiction. We want to believe, we want to follow the Lord, but we fail. And when we fail, what do we do? Well, we either follow the enemy's uh, tactic and we, our tails are tucked between our legs and we walk off and we don't do anything else for the Lord because we're not good enough. 
We keep failing. <laughs> you know, this is great. Or we follow what the scriptures say, which is to confess immediately. Get back in fellowship. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That restores the relationship. So what does the disciple do? He keeps close accounts with God. Focus on the ideal. Make love the central theme. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, right? And so uh, just as he has loved us, love one another. So however that works out in your life, uh, it should be. It probably would work out uh, in a non-judgmental attitude more than anything else, wouldn't it? So a non-judgmental attitude would be to give a lot of rain to people who fail, those who are struggling. I've been in Christian assemblies, maybe this is one of them, uh, where there is so much judgmental attitude. I I hope not, I doubt it. But there's so much uh, uh, judgmental attitude that a struggling saint or a new believer can't begin to, uh, you know, meet the uh, standard that a congregation might give. Well, I, I believe that we should make love the, um, the, the central theme, and, and, and I think also ethically we should separate our uh, profession of faith from our possession of Christ. That takes a little thinking, too. You know, I was a pastor for 20, 28 years. At the same time, I was doing academic stuff. So as a pastor, you know, you, you have all kinds of people come into your church, right? And many of them are straight and narrow. They, they, it seems like they know exactly who they are and where they're going. And others don't. But they've made a profession of sorts. So they're here because they say they're Christians. They've professed faith in the Lord. And that's sufficient for my book. I mean, that's what it means. But people can profess the Lord without possessing the Lord. My prayer for each one of you is that you have some sense of what it means to have intimacy with the King of Kings. Um, and I'll bet you 90% of you do, maybe more. Maybe all of you, praise the Lord. There's a distinct difference. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there is a spiritual life. There's an ethical life. There's also a community life that characterized disciples in the first century as well as today. And I think that's where they come together the best. So disciples, uh, as far as the community goes, were part of a family. Remember, they were called children of God. They were called brothers and sisters. They were in the family of faith. They experienced koinonia, that fellowship, that commonality. And we need that as well. That's a mark of a true disciple. Wouldn't you agree? You may not like everybody in this room. No, (laughs) I thought that might really hit a nerve. You may not like everybody in this room. You don't have to. But you've got to love them. And you've got to understand that we're all in this together. And we're uh, working together with one another. So disciples were part of a family back then. And disciples are part of a family now. And I want to encourage you to have strong commitment to this local body. And a strong connection to the universal body as well.
local body, universal. And so what, what uh, am I saying? Am I almost, oh, I'm out of time. It looks like I'm only getting through one of the points instead of three. That's okay. Uh, let me ask you a couple of questions just related to, well, who are the disciples? Who were they back then? Who are they today? Uh, do you know Jesus? I mean, know Jesus, not about him, but do you know him personally? Uh, are you truly one of his followers, one of his learners, a disciple? Uh, would anybody view you as a believer? Is there any change in your life that is uh, demonstrable? Any evidence? You know, if you were arrested for being a, a Christian, would there be any evidence? Um, we used to have at the chapel, at uh, Mountainside Chapel, this motto, uh, seek his face and share his grace. <clears throat> Pretty simple, but I don't think you can share his grace without seeking his face. Otherwise, it comes across pretty phony. So it's, again, I'm driving at discipleship is not what you do. It's not who you share the word with. It's who you are. Discipleship is a deep down relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an identity with him. (coughs) I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The life that I now live in this fleshly body, I live by means of faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So uh, as one of my friends used to say, when you're squozing, make sure Jesus comes out. I don't know if that's a word or not. But when you're squozing, make sure Jesus comes out. So uh, that's the way it ought to be. Are your ethics in check? Are you committed to the community of like-minded believers in Christ? I hope you are. I trust you are. I love this place. I love coming here to speak because I can see and it's nice to look at people's faces. And uh, here I see nice things. Uh, Can you give me two more minutes? That's all I needed. (laughs) I just want to discuss something with you. Uh, It's the second point, but it's very short. It's what are the phases that we go through today? I learned this from Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost at Dallas Seminary. He was the first one to call, call it to my attention and the other students there. And it's this. How do you figure out where you fit And I think it's this way. I think there were four kinds of disciples following Jesus around. There was the curious disciple, called a disciple, uh, John 6.66, easy to remember, 6.66. They were curious disciples because they were so taken with who Jesus was. They followed him around like a lot of people follow around churches and and, uh, preachers and things. They're following along because they're curious. But it says in John 6 that, these curious disciples followed him no more when they heard some hard teaching from Jesus. So I would like to suggest that there are curious disciples who really aren't saved. They haven't really invited Christ to be their savior. Uh, They haven't responded to him, his grace. But then there's another category of Christian, and that would be the convinced Christian. The convinced Christian, to me, is one who's got the true disease. He's one who's analyzed his life and he says, whoa, 
if eternal life is based upon how good I am, I'm in a world of hurt. And I've been reading this New Testament, or I've been listening to these people talk about how something had to be done to pay the price for my sinfulness. And in God's word, it says Jesus died, and there's an exchange of life principle going on. He died so that I can live. And so I'm putting two and two together, and I'm thinking, I think I believe that. I'm convinced that that is true. And based upon that conviction, that understanding of truth, in a nanosecond, somebody can pass from death to life, from darkness to light. In a nanosecond, that's when somebody becomes a Christian, in my personal opinion. But we've all seen it, haven't we? We've seen someone make that profession, walk that sawdust trail, raise that hand, and yet nothing happens for a good long time. I'm curious. Well, no, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I will ask the question and then I'll raise my hand. For how many of you did that happen? I came to faith, but it was a long time before I committed my life to Christ. So I think there's a third level of discipleship and it's called the committed level. So you have the the curious, not a Christian. You have the convinced, that transaction of salvation. And then you have a point in time where somebody says, okay, I've been a believer for a while, but I've never committed my life to him in the way that I know he wants me to. And there's a lot of confusion about the discipleship passage as well. Who can be the true disciple? Well, what do you have? You have people who have to be willing to leave their family on the front row and follow him, have to be willing to go to Afghanistan as a missionary, have to be willing to become a, a, a minister or whatever you want to call that. But there's something that's, that's missing. Then they say, okay, I'm going to be committed. I'm presenting my body as a living sacrifice. And I'm saying, whatever you want, Lord, that's what I want. That's when you become committed. But then you don't seem to have a glorious ministry of standing before thousands of people. You're just plugging along in life. But you're a committed disciple. That's what I want to communicate to many of you. You can be a committed disciple and be willing to do whatever the Lord tells you. But don't let somebody tell you what they think you should do as a committed disciple. It's you and the Lord. And he may not be standing before you to tell you exactly what to do. You trust the Spirit of God and the leadership that he gives you in guidance uh, to to what to do. Well, there's a fourth level, and that's the commissioned disciple. That's the 70, maybe. He sent them out. That's the apostle, or the uh, send, sending out as a, uh, apostles in that way. Those are the people who may be the Billy Grahams of the world. They've been given a specific ministry to do, but we normally think of those who have that great ministry. May I suggest to you, and this is very subtle, and I'll quit on this. Oh, I went over two minutes, I'm sorry. This is very subtle, but, but listen carefully. You can be a committed disciple as well as a commissioned disciple. Once you figure out exactly what you are supposed to be doing in your life. Okay, I'm done. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us your word. And I pray that you'd help each one of us to meditate in the word uh, in as much as it is possible. 
so that we can feed upon that life that we have uh, within the word. It's the living word. I thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ is the living word. And he indwells us. And there's got to be this connection by your spirit. So I pray for each one here that uh, maybe leaving today uh, a reading of your word in a quiet place this afternoon would would reveal uh, more of your will for them individually. Thank you that you've given us jobs. Thank you that we go to work. We make our money. I thank you that we influence people. And I pray, Lord, that you'll give each one here uh, the desire and the ability uh, and the wherewithal uh, to do just that. I praise you for uh, your love for us, your deep and abiding love. Thank you that you forgive us when we fail. I thank you that you uh, lift us up and you set us up upon a rock and you give us the, uh, the wonderful life of Christ. I thank you for these people and I pray your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen.